You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. We want to inspire you to demand more from your money by first knowing what you own, what you owe, and what you want from your money. We'll help you reach your financial goals faster at fidelity.com slash demand more. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. If you've been tuning in over the past months, maybe past year, you know that we've done a few shows on the growing FIRE movement. FIRE standing for Financial Independence Retire Early. We've talked to Brad Barrett, Jonathan Mendonca, Grant Sabatier, Jamila Souffrant. They are fascinating. And today we've got an opportunity to sit down with a guy who chronicled his fire journey in a new documentary that is hitting screens all over the country. It's an interesting topic. And we've heard from all of you that you are looking to find a way to, if not join the FIRE movement, then incorporate pieces of it in your own day-to-day life. Scott Rickens is an Emmy-nominated film and video producer. He's an entrepreneur, and he's the author of Playing With Fire, the title of this new documentary. It's on Vimeo. We're also going to be talking about the journey that he went on with his wife, Taylor, who's featured in the movie. And Scott, I'm thrilled to see you, to have you here. I'm excited to be with you later today as we actually watch the movie with an audience. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. And we're looking forward to having you as well uh, for the screening tonight. It's going to be a lot of fun. So for people who are just being introduced to FIRE, what's the thumbnail sketch? Yeah. So, I mean, FIRE is essentially a a financial framework that you can apply to your life. And to the degree at which you apply it, it can accelerate the time at which you have to work, where you have mandatory labor in front of you. And it's kind of an exciting and intriguing thing to know that maybe you can cut your working life by 10, 20, 30 years and gain that time back on the back end to maybe do things that you're passionate about other than work. And it has some very distinct math, right? I mean, it basically says if you can save 25 times your expenses, then you can choose what you want to do with your day. That's correct. Yeah, the 25x rule. It's uh, it's based off of uh, this Trinity study, which uh, basically says that if you sip off of your investments at 4%, you can essentially sip off of those dividends in perpetuity um, and never draw down on the principal. And there's some arguments on whether that's 3%, 35 yeah, <laughs> all that. But uh, that's getting into the weeds in my mind uh, because by the time you're on that path and you're getting close to making that decision, you know, you're in a completely different frame of mind than living paycheck to paycheck. So um, I think, you know, the, the, to describe the FIRE movement, it's essentially a, a financial framework you can apply to your life. And there's this incredible community of people that you can find online, that you can find at meetups all over the country and really all over the world um, who are there to support you. And I think that's a big piece of it is that, um, you know, you're doing wonderful work here and there are people out there doing that type of work. But it's sort of far and few between. In some cases, you kind of have to go searching for it to find it. And I think a lot of people feel alone in their financial journey. And so that was something that we recognized immediately is that the FIRE movement literally 
it created a, a physical, real mentorship around, you know, how to do this, how to apply it, what are the pitfalls, all the things you'd want to know as you get into it. In terms of the size of this community, do you have any sense for how big it's gotten? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to nail down, but, you know, we have seen the type of traffic that some of the the major bloggers in the space get. Um, we've seen, uh, you know, s- certain Facebook groups, like the Choose Five Facebook group is really active. I think they're pushing something like 30,000. Um, you know, some of the major blogs have, have millions of page views a month. Uh, so there's definitely a lot of interest out there. And um, and these meetups that are happening, I think there's something like 15 Camp Fies happening around the country. There's Camp Mustaches popping up. There's an event called the Chautauqua. That's an international event. And you see, you know, thousands of people going through these. So there's definitely a sizable community. You know, I, I don't know if I had to guess maybe 100,000 uh, active and maybe another 400,000 sort of passive. Thinking about passively it. Passively interested. Yeah. <laughs> Thinking about Thinking it. Thinking about it. <laughs> what do you say to people who say, oh, my gosh, I could never save half of my income? Yeah. Um, I'd say uh, don't let that stop you from learning all the tenets of this framework uh, because you never know what you're capable of. I'm, I'm pretty confident that whoever's saying that to themselves, they are capable of this. But what's more important is to ask yourself, you know, how far would you go? And you're not going to know that until you really push yourself. And I am here to say on the back end of doing that myself that it was well, well worth it, um, that we are so much better off than before. Because uh, because we have a different relationship with money, it's a it's an improved and healthy relationship with money, and we see money as a tool, and we know how to use it now, which is just a far cry from where I was two years ago. Tell me a little bit about where this journey started for you. Sure, I was an avid listener of the Tim Ferriss podcast, and he had uh, Mr. Money Mustache on as a guest. Mm-hmm. And uh, as an avid listener, uh, he introduced Pete as. Uh, one of the most requested guests ever. And he was like, oh, you know, I'm so glad to have you on the show. I can't believe it's taken so long. And I I was like, I feel like I would recognize that name if I'd heard it before. Mr. Money Mustache. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So I was really intrigued by that. And, um, and, but man, getting into that episode, everything that they were talking about seemed to be sort of this antidote that I had been in search for, but didn't know it. In what way? It was this ideal life that Pete was describing where, the things that he cared about, the things that he spent his time on, how money wasn't really a driving factor in all of that, uh, really spoke to me because I was feeling so much stress around money. We were living in a high cost of living area. Uh, we had sort of maybe accidentally let the, uh, you know, keeping up with the Joneses take over. Uh, we were keeping up, maybe not even noticing. And um, it just felt like we weren't getting ahead. And we were working so hard and not getting ahead. And it just felt like this hamster wheel. What were you doing at the time? Um, I was a creative director at a small agency, uh, creative agency in San Diego. And I liked the work. Um, but it's the commute. It's the time away from family. It's all the other things. And uh, and so I just felt like there, there needed to be a change. Like, this isn't what it's all about. And when I heard that interview, um, it felt like the beginning of the answers that I was searching for. And so I dove in deep, um, went headfirst into this world that I didn't know was fire at the time. It just sounded like a cool lifestyle with some answers to like investment questions that I've always had. I never had those types of advisors and mentors in my life. And uh, after really going through the rabbit hole of his blog, many other podcasts, as big podcast man, as I, as I mentioned, I suddenly realized how simple it really all is. 
Um, but that doesn't make it easy. And that was compelling. And I've been in video production for uh, nearly 10 years. And so going down that rabbit hole uh, and looking through the content, I was, I was jonesing for some video. And when I didn't find any, uh, that felt like an opportunity. To create some yourself. Mm-hmm. Take me back to simple versus easy. Mm-hmm. When you say that the concepts around fire are simple, how is that? So to me, uh, you know, I felt like, uh, you know, a total amateur when it came to money. Um, I had never gotten any formal training on it. Uh, my parents uh, certainly, you know, aren't, uh, they, they never saddled themselves or, uh, or taught me, uh, you know, to saddle myself with debt or anything like that. Um, so I stayed out of significant debt, uh, thankfully. But when it came to investing that money, when it came to growing that money, I mean, other than some retirement accounts, which you're not really sure where where those are invested in, yeah. I didn't really know what to do. And it, fe- it felt like a world that was really vast and a bit scary. It's almost like, well, if I'm going to commit to that, it sounds like it's going to be a master's degree in and of itself. And I'm already so taxed and busy. How am I ever going to find the time to learn that? And after reading through Pete's blog. Pete, by the way, is Mr. Money Mustache for those people who are not readers of Pete's. <laughs> Sorry, I go to the shorthand quick because yeah, it's, it's okay. a long name. <laughs> and uh, listening to Mad Scientist's podcast and just going down the rabbit hole, you know, reading about Vicki Robin and understanding um, just sort of the mindset around money and then the way that these investments happen. And then I read um, this book called The Simple Path to Wealth by J.L. Collins. And. It was a simple book to read. This is my first, it's my first finance book I've ever read. And it didn't take me long, and it felt like everything stuck. And it felt like, well, that's pretty simple to understand. And whether it is the absolute best way to go or not isn't really the point. To me, it was just now I have a framework on how to get started. And so that's why I meant it's simple because I'm not a mathematician, right. and I'm not a money expert, and I figured it out. And so it felt like this great equalizer, like, oh, my gosh, how does— How is this not something that's just widely available and everyone knows about it? What tenets did you find yourself embracing? I mean, what were the simple tenets that you decided to live by? I think the the big tenet um, for us, for me in the beginning and for my wife and I later on, was this idea that we were working so hard for our money, but we weren't uh, letting our money work hard for us. And to flip that, you know, to flip that on its head and realize that we're working so hard for this money and then we're squandering it once we have it. And instead, let's be hyper responsible with the money that we are earning. Um, That was kind of the tenant of FIRE to me. It was like this almost indulgent responsibility to your money. Um, And I think that gets mixed up with frugality. It does because there's two parts to it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, when we're talking about being super responsible with our money, we're talking about not getting on that consumption, keeping up with the Joneses wheel where we're spending unintentionally and on things that don't matter to us. But we're also talking about investing our money in a way that makes it work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when you you add the, the word, the dirty word of frugality in there, you know, um, some people sort of shun, you know, at that and say, this isn't for me. I don't want to live like a, you know, curmudgeon. I don't want to do this. Um, I don't see it that way. I see it as being responsible with your money. And what the fire movement, what's so special about it, where the superpower lies is they've kind of pushed it to the extreme a bit to say, well, just take this a little further than you think you can and look at the effects of this because compound interest just keeps getting better and better the crazier you go with it. And so the subtitle of the of the film and the book is um, How Far Would You Go for Financial Freedom as a question. 
And that was a very intentional subtitle. It took us a long time to come up with that. But it's the reason why is because I think that is ultimately the crux of this. There's no prescribed rules. There's nobody like, you know, holding these concepts over your head that you have to save 70% or live off 30000 a year, whatever these extreme cases that you can read about within the fire movement. There's none of that. You can do what's right for you. And if even if you take a few of the tenets of the fire movement and apply it to your life, I mean, you're going to be better off if you're not already applying them. Interestingly, and we saw this in the movie or people who watch it will see this in the film, you and Taylor, your wife, did not come along at the same speed. <laughs> right. As most people wouldn't, right? right. Um, everybody kind of learns at their own paces and feels at their own paces. And that certainly happened with us. Um, you know, a, a secret that I've kept um, about this whole project this whole time is um, I was secretly just trying to get in the door and meet all of these people face to face. And I thought maybe a documentary would be a good way to do that because I really felt as I was learning all this stuff, I wanted to talk to them. I wanted to have, I wanted to get my questions answered. I wanted my wife to be there to hear those answers and those questions because I didn't want to be the only one just, you know, we have to do this, we have to do this because I knew it wouldn't work. Um, what I found out later was it was really about finding, it's, it's about finding your why and your why is individual. So I can't tell Taylor what her why is. I can learn about it and I can help guide her, but she has to come to that realization. And I had come to that realization with my own why. Um, and then Which she, was what? For me, the why was um, this nagging suspicion that I was doing it incorrectly. And by doing it, I meant life. I wasn't taking care of my responsibilities. And my responsibilities, according to me, was making sure that my wife and my family, which, which we had just had a baby, um, that they were taken care of and that I was doing my part. And I didn't feel like I was doing my part. You know, I would go out and work hard, but then I'd, I'd be drinking the cold brew from Starbucks and also get the sandwich. And I kind of want that new shiny object, whatever it is. And um, I knew that wasn't in my heart what I wanted or needed. And I knew that wasn't the path to happiness, um, but I didn't know any other way. And Taylor was happy going mm -hmm. into it. I mean, in the film, she said, and this is a quote, she says, I'm a fairly optimistic person. I never had to think about being happy, but now I have to think about being happy. So going through this process was really hard for her. Yeah. Um, and that was a dark time for me as well, because I was really worried that this path I had convinced her to go and share with me maybe wasn't the right one for her. Because that, that was hard to take, hard to swallow, the idea that she was already happy and now she has to think about being happy. That's regressive. That's the opposite of what I wanted. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, that's that's about in the middle of the film. So I don't want to give any spoilers, but at the end of the day, um, you know, she she realized that maybe this lottery mentality that she was living in, sort of ignorance is bliss. Uh, she's very intelligent. I'm not calling her out on that front, but it, there, there is some bliss to, to not knowing. And I think, you know, she just she didn't worry about these things, even though they were there to worry about uh, these things being, you know, our, our financial position based on how hard we were working. Vicki Robin and her late partner, Joe Dominguez, wrote this seminal book in the field, Your Money or Your Life, which I think was the first book that actually encouraged us to take a look at the time value of our money, something Tim Ferriss does really well to this day. Basically, they said you choose, you know, mm -hmm. you choose your money or your life, you choose your time or your life. And people weren't really thinking about the value of their time, I think, in in that way. She's in the movie, and, and she says, you have to want something more than you want stuff. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and that's very individual, I think, to, to everybody. That's what right. does that mean to you? What, mm-hmm. what do you want more than you want stuff? Yeah, uh, what I want is to be able to control my time and do so in a way that, that is um, as present and as stress-free as possible. You know, that's what I'm ultimately trying to go for. Um, you know, I think she wrote that. I think that book came out like 92, yeah. something like that. And, um, you know, for all intents and purposes, it's essentially like the first time somebody equated time with money and, and the value of that, the value proposition of that. Like there's a scene in the movie where she's on Oprah. Yeah. <laughs> she's at the top. Um in the mid-90s, and she's explaining how this closet of clothes that's standing in front of them um, is, you know, this is three weeks of your life. This is a certain amount of your life. And, you know, Vicki always says, you know, this is a finite resource, and it's one that we need to, you know, be so precious with because we're only here for so long. And um, and so, and then that goes down a whole rabbit hole, which is wonderful of, you know, if you're here, what are you doing here and why are you here and, you know, and all of that. And so it starts to get up, up the Maslow's hierarchy of needs and What's self-actualization? You know, like once you have your basic needs met, what are you doing here? And so um, that's what's so fascinating about this whole fire movement thing. It's not really about money when you really get to the end of the road on it. It's like, oh, money is just a tool. You know? That's what we say here mm-hmm. all the time. I want to dig a little further into the idea of stress and using your limited resources in in your financial life to alleviate rather than bring on stress. But before we do that, let me remind everybody, Her Money is proudly sponsored by Fidelity Investments. We're here to remind you, and this is a good time to remind you, that you work too hard to just let all your money sit in savings. Whether you're new to the workforce or you're approaching retirement, Fidelity will help advise you through your career and beyond so that your money is working just as hard as you do. It all starts with a yearly financial checkup and an understanding of what you own and what you owe. From there, the folks at Fidelity will work with you to evaluate your investment options, determine ways to grow your savings, and keep you on track to reach your life goals. Start demanding more from your money today at fidelity.com slash demand more. We are back with Scott Rickens, entrepreneur, creator of the new documentary, star, by the way, of the new documentary with his wife, Taylor, playing with fire. Stress is big as Mm. far as money is concerned. And what from the fire movement helped you get rid of the stress? Well, I think there was a couple things. Um, To start, it's, you know, this, the framework for me, the way I prescribed it for us was... um, Let's see how far we can take this. Let's see how far we can push our savings rate. I'm not saying that's where we need to keep it, but I want to see how far we can push it so we know what's comfortable for us. I I highly recommend that to people instead of kind of dabbling in it because then it'll never stick. Like go all the way, see what see what's uncomfortable, see what hurts, uh-huh. and then pull it back. What are you What are you capable of, especially long term? Because this is a long it's a long-term contract, right? It sounds like training for, for people who are marathoners, right? Like I was right. on the treadmill this morning and I started at a nice leisurely gait, but I, I try to push it mm-hmm. before I get to the end of my run just to see what I can do. You know, can I get it up to an eight-minute mile, which for me is is pretty good. That's great. But, um, nice but not really. You know, I can get there for like a minute yeah. and then I have to back off. Yeah. But how would you ever know that if you didn't try that? And how would you ever get better if you're not pushing yourself? Right. So, um, you know, so I, I definitely agree, you know, I believe in that sort of approach. But when we did that, um, one of the amazing residual effects of this is, you know, we we kind of went extreme. Don't get me wrong. I mean, we 
we shed it all. You know, we got rid of almost all of our stuff. We got rid of both of our vehicles. We traveled around the country finding, trying to find a new place to live. Um, and I'm not necessarily recommending that for everyone, but if that sounds like a fun adventure, then have at it. But ultimately, you know, we were working towards that, that high savings rate and we got there and we got there fast. And the residual effect of that was all of a sudden we could live off of one income. All of a sudden we've saved up an emergency fund we've never had. And that's an emergency fund that we now feel like we can keep there. And there's solace. There's emotional solace in that. From there, now we have some more leftover. Let's start dabbling in investments. Let's see what that feels like intentionally. But the other thing, you know, you were talking about stress. What, what I love about the FIRE movement is there is this sort of prescription on, you know, try to invest your money with the least amount of stress and oversight possible mm -hmm. um, unless you're fully, completely committed and prepared for that oversight. You know, it's okay if you want to invest in, let's say, real estate. Just know that that's a different type of investment. And so, you know, one of the things that I attached to early on was this idea of investing in index funds. It's like you're investing in the entirety of the stock market. And this portfolio is chosen by experts who deal in this all day long and are better at it than you are. And and then I got the advice uh, from, from our dear friend Jim uh, Collins, who wrote that book, The Simple Path to Wealth. I got this advice, you know, buy as much as you can, as often as you can and hold it forever. And, uh, and the hard part is going to be dealing with the, you know, the inevitable dips, right. the inevitable crashes and all the other things that go along. And that brings a lot of fear and stress. And so you might say, well, that's just as stressful as any other investment. And it's like, okay, sure. But, you know, I would say get into this fire content and really dive in deep because, I mean, Jim just released a, a meditation about staying the course, like right. a literal meditation. <laughs> well, I've got to say, I think the buying low cost, buying all the time mm -hmm. is, it gives you something to hold on to. Mm -hmm. I mean, you talked earlier about the calculus that Vicky went through with the three weeks of close on Oprah's stage. Mm -hmm. When you're looking at your portfolio that way, what you realize is that when the market dips, you just get to buy more at cheaper prices. Right. And that that'll do you, you know, if anybody who's stuck with the market through 2007, 8, 9 and has watched it triple, if not quadruple, knows this works over time. It doesn't work in the short term. That's right. But as long as you can tune out the noise and keep buying, mm -hmm. it does work. That's right. And then... You also mentioned uh, low fees, you know, trying to find the best price to invest your money. That makes all the sense in the world. And it just so happens that our favorite vehicle is usually the cheapest vehicle to invest in. So it works out really well. Yeah. So it's kind of a, a, a no-brainer. But the emotional side can come in. And another piece of advice that we got was you look at World War II, you look at, you know, 9-11, you look at these massive events that had huge effects of the recession, the Great Recession and the Great Depression. These are all situations that the stock market has survived and surpassed, you know, time and time again. It relentlessly goes up and you have to be able to stay the course and know that that's going to happen. And then also believe in this idea that, oh, it's not, this isn't tragic. Don't read the news. Instead, look at it like it's all on a fire sale. Exactly. Yeah. So to speak. And you wouldn't have money left over to start investing at a time like that when the recession is happening, people are losing their jobs, there's a lot of fear. Um, well, guess what? You've also created this wonderful buffer when you have a high savings rate because you need less than everyone else to live off of. 
So it's almost like this this barrier, this buffer that you can put in place. And coming out of that, you know, I came into the market, um, you know, in the job market in 06. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was like Tough I was time. on that, t- you know, I was yeah. on that track for a second coming out of college and then boom. And I, I, so I've lived through that. So there, I think, you know, my generation, we, we've seen that happen. So you have this like fear and you're not really sure how to deal with this. And that's probably where I was when I found this. So that's why it probably resonated as much as it did. Cause it's like, Oh, this, these are all the answers I never had, even though I went through all that. Yeah. So it makes sense to me. A couple of questions as we wrap this up. The first is that we know a lot of our listeners work not in a traditional job, but they, they have freelance income. They have gigs. How do you participate in this movement? If that's something that you want to do when your income is not steady. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the tenants are the tenants, you know, it, it's it's an individual journey. But at the end of the day, it's about trying to save, you know, as much as you possibly can. I like to say just save half, you know, I think that's kind of a nice standard to try to try to go for. And you can either do that by slashing what you're spending, or you can do that by increasing what you earn. And there's great materials out there and resources within the fire community to help you learn both ways. But uh, but yeah, I mean, as far as people advice that I would have for people that are are freelancing and trying to earn more money, I mean, I don't I don't know. It's never been easier to ha- you know in this gig economy uh, with remote work opportunities. It's never been easier to earn money in really interesting and unique ways. You just have to be open to doing those things. But you know, I mean, that's that's an individual path. Yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. Where can people see the movie? Right now, uh, we're screening the movie in theaters. Uh, we are prepping for a digital release uh, later this year, hopefully in a couple months. We're shooting for November, and so it'll be available on iTunes, Google Play, Amazon, you know, anywhere you can kind of buy and rent movies. And so, yeah, we're trying to get it out to the world as fast as we can. There's a whole bunch of interesting, weird processes in the world of independent filmmaking that we're going through right now, but it's been a fun journey. And yeah, and we've had a wonderful response from the screenings thus far. It's just been kind of overwhelming, to be honest. There's, it's played in over 100 theaters across the country. We sold over 9,000 tickets in less than two months. Lots of sold-out shows. It's just been overwhelmingly positive. So we're really encouraged by that because ultimately what we're trying to do is we're trying to spread this message to as many people as we can so at least they have a chance uh, to see if it works for them. And then we also wanted to give the existing fire community sort of a calling card, you know, because it is kind of hard to explain this stuff. And it's hard to talk about money with your friends and your peers and your family. So to just say, hey, you know, check out this documentary. This talks a lot about, you know, the, the, the main tenets of what I prescribe to or what I've been kind of working on or kind of what I agree with, or maybe this is all what I agree with. Um, we tried to give that to them. And, and it seems like we've done an okay job. Scott Rickens, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. And we'll be right back with Catherine and your mailbag. And Hermione's Catherine Tuggle has joined me in the studio. Hey, Catherine. Hi. So we've done, I guess, three or four fire shows we at have. this point. Does it make you think about, well, I'm being way too transparent here because it always sort of makes me think about the excess in my own life. Like, I don't want to, as we've determined already, retire early, if ever. But these conversations always make me feel kind of wasteful. I think they're designed to, right? I think that if you walk away from a conversation like this and you think you're doing everything right, then you're probably part of the fire movement. 
Yeah, I guess. I mean, I I just came from a lunch. I actually just had lunch with Kelly. Yeah, she says hello to everybody, by the way. And I was pissed off that there was a paper straw (laughs) in my iced coffee. I was. and, And that makes me part of the problem because I have studiously avoided the iced coffee place over the summer near my house in New Jersey where they've just gotten rid of straws altogether. They just have it so you drink it through a spout, which seems to me ridiculous because they had to make new lids for the cups. So why not just make a straw, paper straw, bamboo straw, what, whatever you want to do. But yeah, these paper straws that melt I, make me part of the problem because I get pissed off. I don't know anyone who is a proponent of the paper straw. This is a constant conversation I have every time I am out with my friends. And oftentimes we have to ask for five or six paper straws for our table because we know that we're going to sit there long enough that they're all going to disintegrate. And then I start to wonder, what did they bleach the straw with? This straw is purple. What am I actually drinking now? I did have a bamboo straw, One one of the other places switched from plastic straws to bamboo straws. And I remember being in Japan about, I don't know, almost a year ago now, and being in a bamboo forest and the tour guide saying, how long do you think it takes the bamboo to grow to what was a height taller than my house, like way taller Uh than my house? We're all guessing like five years, 10 years. And she said, two weeks. And because bamboo is one of those incredibly durable and renewable resources. So I can sort of get behind the bamboo straw. It was a little it was a little small. It did the trick and it didn't disintegrate. And I know this is not what the fire movement is about, right? <laughs> I, I totally took us off course, but it does make me think about the excesses in my own life and how if I got rid of those excesses that were not meaningful to me, I could have more money to do things that were more meaningful. Right. I mean, I think that the dialogue around fire, when you play devil's advocate with fire, the thing that you always hear is, at what point are you stripping the joy out of your daily life? Right. And that's the big question, right? The trips that you don't take or the meals that you don't enjoy for a friend's birthday, these are life experiences that will not come around again. Yeah. And like, and we heard Scott and Taylor struggling with some of that. For sure. At my wedding, a friend of mine said that this is the only moment when all of these people will ever be in the same room at the same time. And of all the things that were said to me that day, that was the most profound because I started thinking about even like a yoga class or a friend's birthday. These are moments in time that will never occur again. Yeah. And when I overspend, sometimes I hear that in my head, right, inspiring me to say, you got to carpe the diem. Right. You got to say yes. (laughs) You got to go do this thing because it's not going to happen again. Yeah. No, I know. Well, I guess that's the point, right, to get you to think about it, even if you're not going to do it, to just think about your level of conspicuous consumption or meaningless consumption or mindless consumption, whatever we want to call it. But I would really like a straw that works. I would love that too. Do you, what about a stainless steel straw? Would you consider carrying one of those around? I I would consider it. I'm a little afraid of the hygiene issues because my bag, my tote bag, not the cleanest place in the world. 
Mm-hmm. It, you know, I end up with a lot of stuff on the bottom of my tote bag. I could do it. I'm also a little bit skeeved out. It feels a little teeth on a stainless steel straw feels a little like nails on a chalkboard, except that we use spoons. So maybe it wouldn't be so difficult. Yep. I don't know. I'll give it a try. Give I'll it a buy, try. Let I'll us buy know. a pack for the office. <laughs> we can all we can all give it a try. Let's go to mailbag. What do we have today? Our first question is short and sweet. It is from Chris from Pittsburgh. They write, when searching for a job, is it wise or foolish to accept a position you are overqualified for in order to, quote, get your foot in the door of your dream company? I think that's the way of the world these days, and it to some extent. And granted, Chris, I wish you would have told us your age. I have a whole cadre, I feel, of 50-year-old men in my life who are in the job market and are constantly being told that they are overqualified for a position and have been asking one by one, should I take a step back? Should I take a position that I'm clearly overqualified for just to get employed again? And sometimes it's even a tough slog to get people to take you on for a job they know you're overqualified for. Mm -hmm. So I I do think it's a double-edged sword. Is it wise or is it foolish? I think it really depends on the trajectory that you can see ahead of you. If you're taking a job that looks like there won't be room to move up quickly or at all, I think you're going to be really frustrated really fast. But if you can see opportunity to make yourself valuable, to make yourself known, and to escalate, I don't think it's a bad thing to do to take a step back in order to move forward. It's something that I did a number of times switching gears early in my career. Mm -hmm. I did it in terms of salary. I halved my salary at one point in order to get back where I wanted to go. So clearly dream company is somewhere that you really want to be. I I would probably go for it. Is it fair to ask directly and say, I'm taking a pay cut. I'm taking a step back. Can you let me know if I'm a good performer, what my chances for advancement are? Yeah. Or when my next evaluation will be. I think that's an absolutely fair thing to lay on the table. And I think, first of all, I wouldn't do it until you get the offer, because I do think it's a little bit of an expectation setter. Right. But if they have expectations that are misaligned with yours, I think you want to know it before you start. Great point. Yeah. Um, Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Next up is from Meg in Richmond. She writes, I greatly enjoy your podcast and newsletter each week. I love learning and getting smarter on my commute and eagerly await the newsletter coming through each week. I had some questions bubble up from recent listening and reading. I'm curious, how many credit cards is too many if you're using them the right way? And as an added layer to that, if you have five or six credit cards that you use for different things, how many is it okay to be paying an annual fee for? I've used the Capital One Venture card for a long time, but I'm excited by all the benefits of the Chase Sapphire Reserve. You're the best. Thanks again for all you do. Meg, you're reading my mind this week. I don't have as many credit cards as it sounds like you do, but I did just add another one with an annual fee to my wallet. I actually added an American Express Gold card for business, and the reason I did it was because you get four 
points for every dollar that you spend on travel, and I'm spending a lot of money on travel these days. I also happen to have the Amex Platinum card, and I decided that that's worth the money as well because I use the airport lounges and I use the 10 credits for free Wi-Fi each year. And so if you add those things up, both of these cards are going to pay for themselves in my wallet. And so I think they're two different questions. First of all, the annual fee question, I won't pay an annual fee unless I can actually earn it back in terms of added miles that I couldn't get elsewhere, or perks. And perks are things like free credits against your bill. That Chase Sapphire card gives you a $300 travel credit each year. And even though it costs close to $500, you're already getting so much of that back that if you're going to earn that benefit, it will very likely pay for itself. The five or six or more credit cards I don't believe in keeping credit cards that you're not using that have an annual fee. And the other barometer that I'd check is your credit score. If your credit score is not as high as you want it to be, one reason may be that you have too many credit cards, that they are looking at you as a risk for overspending. I'm assuming if you're qualifying for the Chase Sapphire card that your credit score is just fine. But if you start to see it waver, I might look to get rid of one or two of those cards. That said, it's a tough line to walk because we also know that closing credit cards can hurt your credit score because you're essentially digging into your credit utilization ratio. Your credit utilization is the percentage of credit that you have that you're actually using. And when you close cards, you shrink the denominator of that fraction. You get rid of credit that you have. So I'd say be careful. No need to close them if your score is where you want it to be and if you're not paying annual fees on most of those cards. But I love a question like this, as you can tell. (laughs) Great. Great feedback. All right. Our last mailbag is from Katie. She writes, thank you so much for all you do to bring clarity to the sometimes overwhelming world of finances. Ah, thanks, Katie. Thanks, Katie. I just accepted a job at a new company, which is very exciting. However, my new health insurance doesn't kick in for 30 days. I'm terrified of going without health coverage. I can avoid making routine doctor's appointments for a month, but if I were in an accident or had a medical emergency, I hate to even think what it might cost me. What are my options for health insurance during this short period other than COBRA? It's quite expensive, so I was hoping there might be more affordable options out there. Also, let me add that I've worked at the same job my entire adult life, so I've never gone through this transition before. Thank you so much. So, Katie, there are short-term health plans. Um, And you should look at them. You should look at the benefits. Some of them don't cover the everyday trips to the doctor, but really are there only in terms of covering a big medical emergency. In other words, they operate a little bit more like a hospitalization or indemnity plan, but they are out there for precisely this purpose. Um, The folks at eHealthInsurance.com, they have a lot of them. So I would send you there. And uh, if you find that they too are not 
economically desirable, the one thing I would say is your inclination is right. Don't go without because something could happen. Life does happen and we can't always control the timing of it. So if you have to bite the bullet and either pay for COBRA or one of those policies, I hope that you will do that. Absolutely. Catherine, thanks for the questions. Absolutely. Please write in to us at mailbag at hermoney.com. And in today's Thrive, while we're on the subject of credit, how long has it been since you checked your credit report? Given the huge number of data breaches we've had in recent years, the number for the record was 6,500 in 2018 alone. I would hope that the answer to that question is that you're checking your credit often, particularly if you don't subscribe to a credit monitoring service. But a survey out recently from the Consumer Federation of America showed consumers are actually checking our credit less often, which can spell big trouble in the identity theft department. From 2012 to 2019, the number of consumers who said they believe it's important to check their credit dropped from 82% to 67%. What's going on? Well, it seems that far too many of us are operating with an out-of-sight, out-of-mind mentality. If you think back to 2012, many of us were still facing those challenges left over from the Great Recession. We were dealing with mortgages and credit cards that were not functioning optimally, so credit was top of mind. But when the economy is doing well, when jobs are plentiful, when money is coming in, those things become less of a priority for us. In other words, we've gotten less vigilant because we're feeling good, even though we're living in an era when we should be just as vigilant, if not more vigilant. So here's a reminder. We are all entitled to check our credit reports for free by requesting one report from each of the three credit bureaus, Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion, each year at annualcreditreport.com. I like the idea of checking a report every four months so that you just are doing it on a continuing basis. And then... Once you've checked it, freeze your credit with each of the three credit bureaus. Credit freezes are now free in all 50 states, and that means you are officially out of excuses for not having done it yet. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Scott Rickens for the fantastic conversation. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided through Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week. We'll be back with another great guest, and we'll talk soon. 